That's it for you fans of August. One of those crazy months where there are no holidays, which is fine. You don't need halls, as they say, in London. I'm Guy Adami. That's Dan Nathan. In just a few minutes, Tom Sosnoff of Tasty Trade will be joining us. And, of course, if it's Wednesday, it's Carter Braxton Worth. Today's episode is brought to you by Fexet. Financial data and analytics that are powered by tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, Dan, and know-how. And of course, we're powered by Open Exchange. The Yankees are powered by Aaron Judge, who hit his 51st dong of the season last night before the month of September. Something that only, I think, seven people in the history of Major League Baseball have done. Tom Sosnoff, by the way, was recently at the Field of Dreams game. That may come up. It may not. But what do I know? It just uh, came up, you? guy. I'm doing well. So so first things first, I think on that list of, what do you say, seven people have hit 51 so, dogs? Yes. How happen. many of them are Yankees? Obviously Maris, obviously Mantle. Um, well, you know, yeah. look, I mean, just saying. if you I'm are a fan saying. of baseball, typically yeah. any list that involves greatness will have a number of Yankees yeah. on it. And that, again, is the arrogance that comes with being a Yankee fan. I'm proud of that, by the way. Matter of fact. All right, let's talk about arrogance. Last night on Fast Money, there was a headline that hit the Wall Street Journal that Snap was going to lay off about 20% of their workforce. Mm-hmm. It was kind of interesting. We were chit-chatting before the show, and usually when you get those sorts of leaked headlines they're also followed by probably much worse headlines about the business so it was interesting guy when i walked in this morning it was just the leaked headline still other news organizations were picking up on it the stock that had sold off from 11 to 10 over the last day or two was trading at nine dollars pre-opening and then all the news about restructuring and all the stuff they're going to cost you know and then the stock rallies 20 percent literally in the pre-market and now here it is today up 10%. And and I bring it up because, again, we talk about, you know, expectations and how fundamental investors or traders think about news flow, that sort of thing. And sometimes, you know, when you have news that's highly anticipated, I mean, listen, the stock was acting like, you know what, you know, prior to the rumors and then prior to the announcements. I mean, it means that, you know, I guess people are expecting bad news and then you get this sort of relief. Thoughts here, Guy, because we have a few charts. You see the gap here. You also see on a year-to-date basis that there's been a number of gaps lower. The stock consolidates. Then bad news comes out. It goes lower. And then lastly, look at this thing from its March 2017 IPO. The stock was dead before the pandemic. The mm-hmm. pandemic is the thing that caused the mania. Here it is again, full disclosure. I'm long the stock. I'm optimistic from levels where it is right now. But just your thought on all the price action that we've seen over the last 24 well, hours. Well, I mean, there's the old saying, buy the rumor, sell the fact. And it works the other way as well. I mean, for some stocks that have been going down, it's sort of sell the rumor, buy the fact. And I think that's what we're seeing here to a certain extent. I would submit the technicals sort of line up for being long this stock with the risk reward, obviously. And you can see the lows yeah. that the stock has made over the years with that risk profile. I think it sets up really well. And Dan, I think you would acknowledge as well. I mean, the stock's already traded, I think, 175 million shares or so. Typically trades about 40 million shares. It's going to trade a quarter yeah. of a billion shares or there today. That seems to me like a directional change. So I think playing the stock from the long side makes sense. And look, it doesn't mean all their things have been fixed. I mean, they're still, I think, to a certain extent, they're feeling the pressures of a very difficult environment, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. But maybe you can make the argument that it's all manifesting itself in the stock. Now, what I really think is interesting is the move in Facebook to the upside. I happen to think that might be short-lived because 
Facebook's problem are specific to Facebook, but we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, no, we, we threw that chart up there yesterday during Market Call, just kind of highlighting. We're going to do it again with Tom, some names that we're most focused on that really just act like dog crap and look like about to break and make new 52-week lows. Facebook was on that yesterday. If it gives up the gains, and I think at one point it was up 6 or 7% this morning on the heels of what Snap was doing. I mean, it's lights out there. All right, guys, let's talk about, speaking of lights out, you know, since I guess it was about August 17th when the S&P topped out, Carter laid out the lines. We were kind of pressing the move on the S&P 500 to the downside or kind of keep reloading on that thing. Talk to me a little bit about the inability for the market to hold to early gains after big down days, which we've seen over the last week or so. What does that mean psychologically? Like what's the investor mindset here when you get any sort of green on an opening, you're just kind of laying into it, selling futures, selling longs? Well, understanding that, again, I know you know this, we mentioned it, today's month end. So there's obviously some things that are associated with that. So that makes it somewhat of a special situation. I'll also say that it's disappointing to me that we are not able to sort of bounce in a meaningful way from this level. This level being a 50% correction of that June 16th or so low and the, uh, the high you just mentioned in the middle of August. That is a bit concerning because... What we've seen over the last few years is when we get to levels like this, typically you have a knee-jerk reaction to the upside when these snapback rallies. And the fact that it didn't happen yesterday, although it tried, and it didn't happen today, although a couple hours left. Tom Sosnoff from Tasty Straight, the aforementioned guy, you just said that his field of dreams might make it into the show. You just made it into the show. So, Tom, talk to us here, man. You just made it all the way out to Iowa from Chicago for a Cubs game. Is that what happened? Well, it's only a 39-minute flight, but yeah, <laughs> um, we're actually sponsoring the Cubs this year, so they invited us out to the cool. Field of Dreams game, and I wasn't really that, that much looking forward to the game. Cubs, Cincinnati, you know, like two last-place teams, but it was one of the best sporting events I've ever been to. It was one of the coolest things, and I live right by Wrigley, so I go to a lot of Cubs games, and the Cubs aren't very good, but I got to tell you, that event was freaking awesome. So it was cool. That, I'll just leave it there. No, it, it was, was just... cool. Major League Baseball does a great job. I think Ken Griffey and his son actually walked out of the cornfields. I mean, that, that listen, that's wonky. I get it. But oh. I get into shit like that. So oh, yeah. what can I and, tell you? And they had pregame. They had Fergie Jenkins throwing to Johnny Bench, you know, like, like throwing out the first pitch, which was really cool. And when you walk into the place, all the fans, so I didn't know this, but all the fans walked through the cornfields. So you go through this, like there's no markings or anything and you just start following other fans and start walking through the cornfields and then it walks and it leads into a, into a path. And then all 7,000 fans walk down the same pathway all through the cornfields. You can't see anything but cornfields and it's crazy cool. We left at like 11 in the morning. We got home about two in the morning and it was a great sporting event. So yeah, Sounds like a it. fish concert, but I'll let Dan get into the market portion of this <laughs> way, conversation. Way better than a fish concert. Way better. So, Tom, talk to us a little bit. You just heard guys say that, you know, we had this June 16th to August 16th yeah. move in the S&P 500, nearly 20% off the lows. At the lows, the S&P was down almost 25% or so. So we have this kind of 50% retracement. Just from an investor psychology standpoint, what, what does that mean to you? Guy made a really good point. You know, when we saw, like, you know, levels over the last couple of years, a lot of traders were trading very technically, right? So I'm just curious your thought, where we are right now in our inability to kind of hold some of these early morning sort of futures ramps, just investors are selling right into them. 
Yeah, well, I just want to preface the whole thing by telling Guy that my dad was an usher at Yankee Stadium. Just go back into Love the that. into the <laughs> go back into the archives <laughs> for about five years of his life when he was a kid. I'm not technical at all, as you know. So yeah. I don't look at markets as as that being any of the reason, you know. In other words, I don't think it's a level thing. I think that markets are they have this emotional factor to them. And when there's bullish, I'm gonna call it momentum or emotion, you can call it whatever you want. When we open down, we go higher. And when there's a lot of nervousness in the market, when we open up, we go down. And not something that stays, that continues on for some indefinite period, Mm -hmm. but it's a short-term phenomenon that's been around for as long as I've been trading. And when markets get apprehensive and when they get a little nervous, and usually when they're closer to a bottom and or closer to a top, depending on which direction it's going. Right now, I'd say probably closer to a bottom, just based on the tape action. But usually, you open up, you go down, and then all of a sudden, you know, at some point, whether it's a couple of days in or a weekend, whatever it is, that trend is kind of broken, and you'll see a pretty explosive move, you know, to the upside, which will then, you know, kind of flip the cards over. So I just think it's it's just a trader's phenomenon. You got to realize that most people participating in the markets on a daily basis are very flighty. And they're not very sticky. And so they're just hoping when they buy them in the morning, they're hoping for some continuation. And when they don't get it, they puke it out really fast. And it's the same thing to the downside. When when markets are strong and they're hoping for a little bit of a sell-off and you don't get it, you puke the shorts really fast and you buy them back. There's been this mythology about the market. And I think it was perpetuated by the industry because, quite frankly, they could hide behind the the curtain of we know more than you when it comes to finances. Don't worry about it. But you and Tony Batts did a thing today about the importance of active position management. And a lot of people would say, what are you talking about? You know, you, you're not, you can't trade the market. It's too hard to do. But quite frankly, I think you guys made some really good points. Can you speak to that? Well, actually, I'm a proponent of, you know, obviously, you know, I'm an efficient market theorist. And I believe that that nobody knows anything. I really believe nobody knows anything. I mean, down to my core. But when we say nobody knows anything, we say we're talking about market direction. When what we do believe is that there are lots of mechanics with respect to trading. There are lots of strategies that apply to high volatility. There are other strategies that apply to low volatility. There are strategies that apply to price extreme, which is completely subjective. And I think that that's more what we focus on. You know, we like using strategic investing. We like using derivative products. And we believe there are optimal mechanics around that. We don't believe there's necessarily any theoretical edge, but we believe that there's there are optimal mechanics that come into play. And so I think that's where you're going with that guy. And I think that that's, you know, I think people have to recognize that, you know, when there is efficiency, it's a very level playing field, but that's what you want. As an investor, you know, I believe there are no such thing as experts. There are people that participated longer. There are people that can articulate things better, like you guys can, you know, compared to somebody else. But you have no idea what's going to happen next, nor do I, nor do anybody else that's been playing this market. So the fascinating thing about the market is it is the fairest game in town for decision makers and risk takers. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, listen, again, pattern recognition is also one of them. I mean, you just use the word experience. I mean, listen, not that, you know, past performance is indicative of, you know, future returns or anything like that. But it's like the longer you're in the game, the more frequently you can identify, you know, like scenarios, right? And how investors might react. And again, it is very, very emotional. Well, you know, Tom, you know, one, one of the areas that I guess that we've talked about with you now over the last month a bit, and you've had 
this trade very correct here in crude oil, which to us is really interesting because, you know, on many of these kind of down days in the markets, you would have seen crude oil acting very well, right? Investors kind of interpreting what that means for kind of inflationary pressures, what it means for corporate earnings, what it kind of means for global growth or, or whatever you want to do. Well, here we are now. And, you know, we talked about it last week a little bit with Carter, especially is like, it's a really important technical level. Again, you don't care about the technical level here. Right. What do you care about, though, as it relates to the overshoot that was very emotional that we had a few months ago in crude oil and now getting back to a level that a lot of traders are eyeing? It was the kind of November 2021 highs. It was the earlier this year breakout, just above 90 where we are right now. And what is crude and the stock market going down together this week saying to you? Well, the correlation between crude oil and the stock market is virtually nil. So it's not what you're looking at is it's coincidental that when they move together, because over the last couple of years, there has been no there's no tradable correlation between any one of the well, be, really between virtually all commodities and the S&P. But crude oil specifically, there's no correlation between crude oil and S&P movement. So I think for me, you know, there's a couple of things about crude oil. One is the massive amount of liquidity in there. And two has been the really high volatility. So it's been an incredibly tradable asset. Like of all the commodities out there that combine liquidity with tradability, meaning just the ranges and the fact that they've been essentially stretching both ends of the range for quite some time. I think that's fascinating about crude oil. The other nice thing about crude oil is it does get a lot of play in the news. Like when you talk about, you know, certain commodities, they're kind of boring, but you like the stuff that you're trading to be kind of the, you like people to be talking about it. You like there to be a lot of chatter and a lot of noise because not that you learn anything from that, but it just creates opportunity. And I think in the world of crude oil right now, you know, we've been leaning on the short side, but we're mostly short premium leaning with short Delta. And I don't see us changing our position with respect to crude oil at all in that regard. Yeah, just real quickly, Guy, before you get in there, because we know that some of our listeners who are probably going to become big Tasty Trade fans, when when Tom says that he is kind of short premium, that he's playing for volatility in the underlying to come in, when he's short deltas, he's playing for it to go lower really quickly, right? So yes. just to kind of break in right there, Guy Adami, what you got? No, we talked about, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we talked about that with the NVIDIA trade, I think, last week as well in terms of what you were looking for. So it's this is all educational stuff. I think it's really important. We've talked about the VIX with you a number of times, Tom, and my sense is with the VIX spiking above 27 over the last couple of days, you're probably looking at that as an opportunity to take advantage of what you probably perceive to be a VIX that is too high in this environment. Can you speak to that? You're 100% correct. And so I think on, on balance, you have to just understand that we're always short VIX. Like we're never long VIX. I don't think that individual investors can trade volatility from the long side, even when volatility is cheap, because volatility is, a, is essentially a math equation. It's the only mean reverting tradable asset there is. So price is not mean reverting, which is really important to understand. Price is just, you know, hey, you can think it's mean reverting. You can play it for that. But there's no mathematical significance to price being mean reverting. But with volatility, it's a math equation. So volatility is by design mean reverting. Now, that doesn't mean it has to happen whatever your time frame is, but it is a mean reverting asset. So the problem with volatility to the long side is that it clusters specifically when it's low. It clusters low, and it's very expensive to carry. I mean, you know the cost to carry volatility 
is as much as 100% a year. So the volatility on volatility is over 100%. So it's really expensive to carry volatility to the long side. So the only way to trade volatility, in my opinion, unless your timing is absolutely perfect, the only way to trade volatility is from the short side, because almost 70% of the time volatility contracts. And it also, because it is mean reverting at 27, well, right now the VIX futures are actually, they're down a bunch today, but it's, they're trading 26. But if you, you're thinking about 26, you're thinking about historical being at, let's call it 18, you're really looking at 50% over historical mean, knowing that it's going to mean revert at some point, it's the only side of the market you could be on in there. All right, Mr. Saznov, we appreciate that because again, you know, the VIX is something that's talked about quite often in the financial media as the fear index. I think a lot of people don't understand it is a tradable instrument. It trades, you know, you can trade options on it, you can trade futures on it, and you can interpret it in many different ways. I think a lot of people think of it as when it's at relative highs, they want to be doing something. And, and, you know, what you would say is, well, you can do something, you sell volatility. I think that's your point. And you do that routinely. Um, in a kind of mechanical sort of way. It's going to be a profitable strategy. Okay, well, listen, Tom, we really appreciate you joining Guy and me on Market Call. You guys, go to tastytrade.com. Tom and Bats are talking all morning as news is breaking about individual names, about the market. So check it out there at tastytrade.com. Also, follow them at tastytrade on Twitter. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Tell that maniac Dylan I say hi, and he is a man. I love him, but he's out of his mind. Time for the great card. If it's Wednesday, it's Sunday at Carvel. Nobody had that on their bingo card. But if it's Wednesday, it's also time for Carter Braxtonworth. How are you, dubs? I am good, men. Well, listen, Carter, we appreciate you. We know that you've been doing some heavy lifting this summer there with Worth Charting. You do your your midnight. Here's a question I had from somebody. Your midnight videos, are they live or are they just put out at midnight on Worth Charting? They're live. Okay. So so that's why you didn't get the that's why you didn't get the shave in this morning. All right. We got two things. I think that regular viewers now, Market Call, recognize on Wednesdays we are doing something where Guy will talk about an underlying from a fundamental standpoint. Carter will lay out the technical setup, and then your main options man here will lay out the trade. We're gonna do that in a second here, but talking to Carter and Guy this morning, we we're thinking about the show. We kind of wanted to lay out three charts, Carter. And I wanted just to get your sense. These are not your beautiful charts with all your very smart lines. This is my dumb charts here. But these charts, I think, are interesting to me because they're in technology and they're names that I think are really important for a couple different reasons. Let's start with NVIDIA here. Guy, you kind of thought, and as the numbers were coming out last week, right, and we previewed it with Tom a little bit, you thought it was kind of at a very difficult level here. You thought that the guidance after had already guided down for revenues was not likely to be good going forward here. It wasn't good. The stock got bailed out, though, the next day because the market was up, but quickly gave it back. Thoughts on NVIDIA? And then, Carter, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Do you think this one should be the sort of focus that Guy and I are placing on it also? It's just not NVIDIA. Video, I mean, the whole semi-space has been under pressure. Yeah, they had that brief bounce, but you know, you're talking about names that obviously rallied pretty significantly into August and then, you know, really turned on a dime. And again, with just in terms of Nvidia specifically, I mean, valuation is still a problem. Now, we talked about them guiding lower on gaming, and then they came out and reported a quarter a couple of weeks later. 
that wasn't by their standards particularly good. And you have to wonder, you know, is this valuation justified? But it's a laundry list of names. AMD has been under pressure recently. Look at Texas Instruments, a move that we've seen there. And again, if there's a lot of double ordering going on prior to, you have to wonder what the inventory build is going to look like for a number of these names and what that does to margins. So this is a critical level to hold. I just don't think it's going to do it, Dan. All right. Well, Carter, talk to us. Are we placing too much emphasis on this name? I mean, I think like late last year, I think the investment community was saying quite clearly, this is going to be the next trillion dollar market cap company. Well, it's been cut in half and then some thoughts on on what you think, just your quick take on my line there at 150. Sure. I mean, you, okay, let's talk about the line. It's okay. The line, you just picked one spot, which is, I get it, the pre-COVID thing, and then you yeah. drew it across. So it, it actually only connects one spot, right? The point in which you started. But, <laughs> Can I just stop for a second, Carl? Because that, that is just beautiful. The way you yeah. just eviscerated well, I called it. it. I called it. So good. So, so independent of that, you, but you're making a point with the line, I get it, which is that this thing is round-tripped, right? Independent yeah. of where that line is, it's back to kind of where it started. And the real issue is, is it going to work lower? And I think the problem with this and with CRM, with Adobe and others, is that these stocks all bounce with the market. And of course, it's not the market that bounces. Individual stocks like this do, and then the index does, whether it's the QQQ or the SPX. But whereas those aggregates are still well off their lows, this is precariously close to undercutting and making a new low. And so in this instance, NVIDIA bounced 38% versus a yeah. bounce in the QQQ of what, maybe 24? Yeah. And now, and if you look at this, or if you look at CRM, if you look at Adobe and others, we're too close, it's uncomfortably close to being back to the prior low, which ultimately the implication that it undercuts those lows. Yeah, which well, let's- say, let- It's below your green line, although again, that's, uh, and then do we make new lows? Either way, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. this is bad chart. Well, and I guess Salesforce, which you just mentioned, again, you know, had a really nice bounce off of its lows, given it's all back. And I think what's important about both of these companies, it was their results and guidance that was the impetus to kind of round trip the move off of the lows here. And Guy and I think that this is an important company when you think about just the products that they sell, the pull forward, or just the demand that was recognized in a hybrid working environment in the pandemic world of valuation. I mean, this goes on and on and on, but there's no way that this stock holds that green line, right? I mean, and again, very, I very unlikely. And, and, yeah. and if you think about what it is, if there's a period of, of good times in the market or any endeavor, let's say you're punching holes in the desert down in Texas and everyone else is getting oil and you keep punching holes with sand, meaning when the good times end, guess who gets hurt the most? The guy who was never prospering in the first place. Because he's yeah. had all the debt, all the entire, meaning stocks that couldn't really bounce as much as the market, and then now are back at almost the low where the market's nowhere near its June low. These are the ones that undercut. You're seeing it in things like a DoorDash, right, or a Peloton or Zoom. Those are small companies now. This is a big company, right? And CRM is a big company. These are S&P top 50, top 100, and they all look as though they're going to break. Yeah. Well, speaking about just kind of the bottom falling out, real quickly, Guy, ARC, we found ourselves talking about the ARC Innovation ETF an awful lot, you know, right up until about this spring. And we kind of stopped talking about it because at that point, it was basically the island of misfit innovation toys in the stock market. But there was one stock 
that 10% of the holdings are kind of holding the whole thing up. And it was Tesla here. So, you know, look at this thing. It had a nice bounce. It had not made a new low with the NASDAQ when it did this summer again. But it really feels like it's going to give up the what? What do you call it? The, uh, the, the ghost. I'm not yeah, really sure what that means, but that's what's yeah. about to give up. And I'll tell you, since the split, Tesla has not traded particularly well. And we obviously just had Tom on. In a couple of weeks, he said, you know, that 900 pre-split level was really sort of no man's land, and he thought the risk reward was probably better to the downside, and that's really played out pretty well as you now split three for one, but the stock is significantly lower than where you know that nine hundred level pre split would suggest. So I'm with him on this, and we have said this a number of times, and again, not to cast aspersions, and somebody hit bingo just now with that one, but <laughs> the most innovative thing about the Kathy Wood Arc ETF is that inverse Arc ETF that somebody created. Last summer, when, if you recall, Michael Burry pointed out that it was probably a huge short opportunity. He nailed that. So there is literally, I mean, it has bounced, Dan, but there is no yeah. bounce here in the ARK ETF, not, none, not given the level of which it sold off over the last year or so. All right. Well, you know what time it is. We only have a few minutes left here. Oh, and no, this is why twenty seven. We better hustle. Let's hustle here, but let's do this thing because again, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about large cap indices here, but guy, you wanted to kind of take a look at the Russell 2000. Carter wanted to chart it and I'm going to throw out an options trade on it. Give us your take on small caps here. It feels like, you know, over the course of the summer, we spent less time sort of talking about them. Guy, with some of the economic data that we're starting to see weaken here and as the recession, I guess, you know, like warning signs are, mm-hmm. are screaming there in silence. Don't you think there's a good chance that we'll see it manifested in small cap stocks, you know, before or an acceleration lower in them? That's if you read my mind. If we can put that chart up, it's not coincidence that small caps, you saw that bounce in the IWM, which, by the way, you would think are 2000 stocks. The ETF actually has 1970 in it, but that's, you know, that's just sort of bookkeeping, as they say. But the bounce really came on the belief, misguided belief, that somehow the Fed was going to pivot. And I think when people came to realize it's not the case, obviously the S&P sold off, and now we're starting to see it in the small caps. The Fed has told you there is going to be pain. The stocks that will feel the most amount of pain, in my opinion, in that environment, are the most economically sensitive names, and those are the 1,970 or so names found in the IWM ETF. So I think lower from here, Dan Nathan, and I think the fundamentals sort of bear that out. Yeah, and it's also a rate thing too, right? So if these companies are kind of less capitalized or you know not as well as their large cap brethren, the cost of capital has just gotten a lot more expensive here. Carter, this was one that I, I know that you articulated this very well. On a relative basis, you preferred small caps, right, to large caps. What are you thinking on an outright basis here now? Let's look at the IWM that tracks the Russell 2000 index. Sure, so this is the sort of peak to trough. What's important is, of course, it peaked earlier than the S&P. S&P was Jan 4 of this year, and the small cap peaked in November of 2021. That line, I think it's uh, not arbitrary, but close. It only connects two points or three. But if we can toggle here, look at this. This is log scale. Look at arithmetic. Now, let's go back and forth. The first one's arithmetic. There's log, arithmetic, and log. So the question is, do we check back Having overshot that downtrend line, broken above it, do we go back to it? And so if it's using the arithmetic scale, that's 4.5% lower from here. If you look at the log scale, it's 2% lower. So one could say, well, it can't be both. So we could go to the arithmetic 
and get down 4.5%, which means we would have undercut on the law. But either way, I think we've given back clearly, and you can see it there, a good deal of the bounce since the June 16th low. And I think that we're going to give back yet more. Yeah, no, I do too. And and again, I mean, the charts are great. I'm not so specific as far as percentages on this sort of thing. I look at that May low where we had that last big bounce off of that 170 level in the IWM. That would kind of be my target for a trade to the downside, especially when I'm using options and especially if I'm using spreads to express a directional view. I want that spread to be sort of wide and give myself some room to kind of fall into it, Carter, as you'd like to say, into that sort of technical support. So here's the trade that I put on today when the IWM was trading around 184 and a half. I bought the September 184, 170 put spread, paying about $3.30 for that, buying one of the September 184 puts at about $4, selling one of the September 170 puts at 70 cents. Again, that is my downside target. September expiration is September 16th. So I only have a little more than two weeks. And I do have this long holiday weekend, which is actually treacherous for owning options into. But again, this profit, I have profit potential of up to $10.70 between 180 70 and uh, 170 to the downside. I have a max gain of 1070 at 170 or lower. I have losses of up to $3.30. That's the premium I paid for this between 18070 and 184 with a max loss of $3.30 above 184. That is my long put strike. This trade idea risks about 2% of the ETF price and I have a break even down only about 2%. So again, if I have this IWM down 2% in the near term, I am already breaking even here and I have gains of up to 6% of the ETF price if it is down 8% a little more than two weeks. So I like the risk reward here. But again, last thing, as I think about trade management, you know, if this ETF doesn't do anything or goes higher, I want to think about cutting my losses here. I don't want long premium directional trades to go to zero. Usually I like to use a mental stop about 50% of the premium. So again, I am playing for a move over the next few weeks down towards 170. Almost, I guess, a rehash of the entire move that we've had over the last month and a half. $1.65 would be 50% for you playing our home game. See the way I did that math in my head, Dan Nathan, because that's what I do. It sounds like you're risking less to make more, Dan. And this will be on our website, no doubt, this trade, when you can read for yourself, folks. Is that accurate, Dan? Yeah, there you go. We will tweet that art. All right, Carter, we appreciate you coming into the city, man, doing a little heavy lifting for us. We went through a few charts that we are focused in in tech. We got guys take on the funny metals of the small cap stocks, my options trade. Thanks a lot for joining us, Carter Worth. For more of Carter's fine worth, where can you find it, guy? Worthtrading.com. And you notice quite, I mean, stealthily, Carter matched his shirt with the script behind him in the worth charting. If you look, it's brilliant. I mean, they call that, I think they call that like subliminal advertising or something. I I don't know. All right, man. We appreciate it. All right, guy, Dami, take us out. That's it, peeps. I want to thank Tom Sosnoff because I really enjoy our conversations. He's fun. I always enjoy Carter Braxton Worth, who I do think will be, on CNBC's Fast Money this evening at 5 p.m. Again, for you playing our home game. That's East Coast time, Dan. I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet, Tasty Trade, and I want to be thank them uh, for powering us. That would be, of course, Open Exchange. Tomorrow's Thursday, Dan. It's September 1st. The calendar flips. And on Thursdays, what happens? 
Yeah, well, we have EY from SoFi. Yes, That's we what do. we do, guys. There didn't, didn't need to be a hesitation there. I well, I was to be frank. Real quick. I, to be frank, I wasn't paying attention. I was reading a text <laughs> that was coming in, but I, you know, I just thought you were going to take us it's out. The cheapest thing you can yeah. do. Uh, yeah. The other cheapest thing you can do is just sort of click off and say goodbye. Hope you won bingo today. I'm five thousand. All right, hold on, real quickly for some of our people who are oh, still with us here. So Liz had a birthday. Remember that oh, earlier in the summer? Yeah, and, I mean, and, and, were you celebrating again? Yeah, no, but you and I owe her a gift, and I have a gift coming that says EY from SoFi. So we'd love, we'd love to hear any suggestions of things that our viewers think that Guy and I should get for EY from oh, yeah. SoFi for her birthday that would be monogrammed with EY from SoFi. So please tweet at us, email us at contact at riskreversal.com, whatever. Let's give oh, I got listen, now, now that we're doing this, I yeah. think a great T-shirt would be I'm EY from SoFi. You're not. That's, they, that's so cl- good. That is clever. That is that's clever. So All good. right. Well, we're working on Let's hear some ideas, people. Thanks a lot, Guy. We'll see you tomorrow.